0: Welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to Titus. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And just to keep the context in mind, in the previous paragraph, Paul called Titus to teach various groups of people in the church to behave in specific ways in keeping with really their age, their status, their position in the church. And Titus himself was supposed to be a good example of all of that. And he wants believers to act in these ways so that they'll make the teaching about Jesus attractive. And so Titus must give himself to passing on these instructions. In fact, chapter 2 ends by urging Titus to uh, speak and exhort these things. Rebuke with all authority. No one should disregard you. So Paul is calling Titus to pass on these kinds of instructions. Well, here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, Paul continues with a series of specific exhortations that are really all set out as things Titus is to call all the Christians there on Crete to do. And the focus here is specifically on living as a Christian in a non-Christian society, living as a Christian in a city that doesn't get Christianity, maybe is suspicious of Christianity, is hostile to Christianity, And so the instructions here are aimed at relationships with unbelievers. Here's what Paul says. He says this, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Remind them. That is, remind the believers. As Titus is instructing them and being called to teach them some things, remind them these... They've been taught this. They need a good reminder of this. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities... Notice that as as Paul is uh, urging Titus to make sure that the churches are set in order and that the believers are learning the proper way to live, here's one of the things that they've already been taught and they need to be reminded of. This is important to their way of living and acting in society, to be subject, that is to arrange themselves under rulers and authorities. Uh, To not be rebellious or disobedient or, right, run the rulers down, but to arrange themselves under the rulers, the governors, the mayors, right, the political authorities, to be obedient. That is, to obey the, the laws of town as far as they can, to be good citizens, right, to be obedient. Then he says, also remind them to be ready for every good deed. This means like they, they are prepared and eager to, to do good in town. That's the idea, to be benevolent, to be helpful, to take care of people, to be in every way people who are useful and good in their community. In fact, the Apostle Peter actually communicates a similar practice and aim in his letter of First Peter. It's one of the major themes of First Peter that Christians should be those who do good in their neighborhoods, do good in their community. So uh, instruct them, remind them to be ready for every good deed. To slander no one. So don't be uh, running people down is the idea of slander, right? Don't be cutting people down, running people down, gossiping about people. To slander no one. Not to be contentious. Uh, Literally, it's just to be uncontentious. To remind them to be not argumentative. To not be bickering. To not just be a difficult person who's hard to get along with. Don't be that guy. Uh, So don't be contentious. Remind them to be gentle, Uh, The idea of this word gentle here is actually forbearing, that you have a conciliatory spirit. You work with people, right? You're not easily annoyed or irritated. You're cooperative and forbearing. That's the idea of this word. So to be that... And in being cooperative and forbearing, they, he goes on to say, showing every consideration for all people. The word consideration is the word more often translated gentleness. And so showing every uh, consideration, showing every sort of gentleness. Uh, for all people. That's the idea. So to be forbearing and demonstrating your your yielding to other people, your considering to other people, not having to get your own way, not being a bull in a china shop. That's the idea. why do we do this? Why is it that we're going to be considerate and forbearing rather than being contentious and slandering and all that? Why? Well, Paul goes on in verse 3 to once again give kind of the basis or the rationale for this sort of behavior. He says, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Um, And so the initial reason given is because We've got to remember where we came from, uh, that we didn't always know the right way to go. And that should help us be a little more compassionate and patient and considerate and gentle with uh, the, the people around us who don't know any better. And so we too were once foolish. That is lacking understanding, making poor decisions, uh, being unwise and getting off track. That was us. We too were once disobedient. We were disobedient to people. We were disobedient to God. We were deceived. That was That is, we were confused and misguided in some of the things we thought about life. We, too, were controlled by our passions and driven by various pleasures, right? If it feels good, do it sort of thing. That was us, enslaved to various lusts, that is, desires or passions and various pleasures. Spending our life in malice, that is, ill will, being harsh, uh, being at times just mean uh, and envy uh, where we we wanted what other people had and we kind of worked to try to bring them down and get ahead. And we were hateful um, or perhaps maybe even hated as well as hating other people. We We had this tendency just to kind of be harsh and mean and hateful towards people. And so that was who we were. And then, just like Paul did in chapter 2, he comes back then in verse 4 here to what God did for us in Christ as the basis for change that took place in us, and thus why it is that we can, we can and should be kind and gracious to the unbelievers around us. And so we were once these kinds of people, but verse 4 says... But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. And so, similar to chapter 2, verse 11, the rationale and basis now turns to the kindness of God, the grace of God, as Paul says in 2, 2 11. When, when God's kindness appeared, not just that, when His love for Mankind. Notice that because Paul is talking about the way we treat mankind, the people around us, the unbelievers around us. So God's kindness and love appeared and it was love for all people, for mankind. When that appeared, verse 5, he saved us. He saved us. He's the one that delivered us and rescued us. From our previous way of life uh, that was foolish and disobedient and misguided and and enslaved to all sorts of wrong things. He delivered us. He rescued us. And He did so, Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness. Literally, when it says not on the basis, it's not. From like not out of or not from deeds which we did in righteousness. That is, the saving that God did for us didn't come from the things we did. The source wasn't our deeds, but strong contrast. But a law in Greek. So rather in accordance with with His mercy. So He saved us because of His compassion. He took pity on us. That's the kind of the sense or the force of mercy. He took pity on us. And again, this in context should drive us to be merciful and kind and compassionate to people all around us, even if they do hurtful things or do things that we think are foolish. It's like God already has shown compassion and pity to us and we should do the same. And so the basis was his mercy, not, not from our works, but according to his mercy Paul continues the thought in the second half of verse 5, saying, by, now he's going to give sort of the means or maybe the manner through which he saved us. Uh, So, by, in in Greek, is through, dia. Through, this is how he did it, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so, this is the manner through which God brought salvation into our life and changed our life through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And the first thing for us to kind of reflect on is the word washing here. Jews had a number of ceremonial washings. Christians only had one, baptism. And As a result of that, many actually see a kind of an allusion to Christian baptism here. In fact, in the early church, read through the New Testament, uh, baptism was the universal entry point into Jesus and his family. When you read through the book of Acts, what you see are people are usually baptized as soon as they put their faith in Jesus, oftentimes on the very same day. And the result of that was their, their experience naturally associated coming into Jesus with their baptism. They were closely associated together. And so that's why when you read through the New Testament letters, you'll see places where baptism is clearly and explicitly mentioned. You'll see that it's associated with things like forgiveness, spiritual resurrection, new life, in the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, and and so on. Now, others have objected to seeing baptism being alluded to here by the word washing because it doesn't use the word baptism and it focuses more on a spiritual renewal. But a form of this very word washing actually was spoken to the Apostle Paul at his conversion and his baptism. You can see that in Acts twenty two sixteen. 16. And so there's no reason to disassociate the word washing from baptism. And in fact, most early church fathers actually saw this verse as an allusion to baptism. And so that's likely what Paul has in mind. He's probably just associating their coming to Christ with that moment where it was marked by their baptism. But it's really important to note that Paul does not attribute the power of Uh, regeneration and renewal, right? The power of new life to the washing itself. He he actually attributes the power to the Holy Spirit here in verse 5. So, the washing may have embodied it, may have demonstrated the renewal, but the power that affects it is the power of God by His Spirit. And so, it's really the work of God. So, If Paul is thinking of their baptism here, we must make sure it's clear um, that this washing is a simple, concrete act, but it's infused with meaning and significance because of the presence and power of God Himself. In fact In the whole context of verses 4 and following, you have all three members of the Trinity mentioned. So you have the kindness and love and mercy of God in verses 4 and the first part of verse 5. You have the Holy Spirit who affects the renewal and regeneration in verse 5. And then in verse 6, you get the, the reference to Jesus himself. So this renewal and regeneration is the work of God himself, all three members of the triune God are involved in giving us new life. And Paul says that this washing involves, we've mentioned it, these two words, regeneration and renewal. Both of these words speak of the new life that is given when when people come into Christ. And it's important for us to notice that. Uh, conversion does not just forgive us, does not just forgive people. Conversion coming into Christ also makes them new people, uh, new creations in Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, or they're made alive, as Paul says in Romans 6 and Ephesians 2, or they're born again, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. And so our conversion is, does not merely equal forgiveness of sins. It does include that, but it's bigger and greater than that in that it gives us new life, regeneration and renewal. And that's what enables us, therefore, to live a different kind of way, to behave in different sorts of ways. And the active agent, as we've noted in this renewal, this new life, is the Holy Spirit. He's the source. It is a regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So he's the one who brings about this very change and this gift of new life in us. And the Spirit is now available Because of the work of Jesus. So that's where Paul goes in verse 6. And so God the Father showed us his kindness and his love and his mercy. The Holy Spirit has brought about this renewal. And now he says in verse 6, whom, that pronoun whom refers back to the Spirit in verse 5. So whom, the Holy Spirit, he, that pronoun he refers to God the Father he, God, richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us by God the Father through the work of Jesus uh, Christ, our Savior. And then the goal and the aim of all that is described in verse 7. So that, verse 7 says, being justified, that is declared not guilty, declared in the right, declared in good standing with God. That's the idea of justified. It's a legal word that has this idea of being declared righteous. And so, so that being justified by his grace, we talked about that in our previous recording. It's in some ways overlaps with the words kindness and mercy up above in verse 4, so that by his grace, that is through his undeserved favor and kindness, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so the final goal of all of this is that we would inherit all that God has planned for and is intending to do for his family. Now that we're in his family and we're declared in good standing with him and we're in a right relationship with him, now we get to be heirs. And that that inheritance that we're looking forward to is in sync with or according to eternal life. Paul then says in verse 8, this statement is trustworthy. And when he says this statement, that refers back to what preceded. In fact, in verses. Four through seven, that's all one sentence in Greek. And so that's what Paul has in mind. God rescued us from our foolish and disobedient ways, made us new, gave us the hope of eternal life, and then a great inheritance to look forward to. That statement is trustworthy. And so concerning these things, Paul says to Titus, I want you, Titus, to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. This is what Paul's after. Paul wants Titus to teach these things and speak confidently about them so that all the believers there on Crete will, will do good deeds. God's salvation is our motivation for engaging in good deeds. In fact, the word be careful when he says we'll be careful to engage in good deeds is literally give thought to, that they'll be intentional about it. They'll have their eyes open to it. They'll think about ways they could get involved in doing good deeds. And so uh, we are driven to that by all that God has done for us. And then Paul says these things are good and beneficial for people. And the these things uh, refers back to the good deeds that he just mentioned before. That seems most likely to what he has in mind by that. And if that's correct, then what Paul is doing is noting that the good deeds done by believers are things that are actually beneficial and good for people there in their communities, in their towns. And so Titus must pass all of this on to the believers. And then there's some things that Paul wants Titus also to avoid. So verse 9, he goes on and says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. This is the kind of stuff that's being taught by some of the false teachers that is troubling some of the Christians. And Paul's already mentioned that earlier on in the letter. Notice the phrase at the end about the law. In other words, there's some debates and strife related to Jewish customs and Jewish laws. And Paul's telling Titus, just avoid those. Don't, don't get caught up in all that sort of stuff. Why? Well, the second half of verse nine, because they're useless and worthless. So contrary to the good deeds above that are actually beneficial for people, these sorts of things are actually useless and worthless, bear no fruit. So just avoid them, reject that sort of stuff. This leads to then a further related exhortation for Titus, for people who are stirring up those sorts of troubles and who are kind of trying to divide the congregation around these sorts of uh, controversies and disputes and all that, here's the exhortation that Paul gives Titus. Reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. And so if there are people who are teaching these sorts of things, they're causing divisions in the church, warn them a first time, bring a second warning to them, and then after that, reject them. And the basic meaning of that word reject is to avoid them. They're not a member in good standing. They're not part of the church in the church family. So treat them like an outsider. And don't welcome them into your activities and your behaviors. Reject them, knowing, verse 11, um, that such a person has deviated from what is right and is sinning, being self-condemned. So the focus here in verses 10 and 11 is on a person who has been part of the church, and that's why Titus has any influence and ability to warn and admonish them. There's some sort of relationship there, and that person has been causing divisions in the church, and the result is, by what they're teaching and doing, they've deviated. That is, they have left what is right. They've gone the wrong way. Literally, um, they have deviated. That is, that there has been a twisting or a perversion of what is right, and they are sinning. And as a result, it's obvious, it's clear, and they're self-condemned. And so Titus needs to address these people so they don't continue to tear down the church and stir up trouble. And with that, Paul has actually concluded the body of the letter. All that remains is some wrap-up things in the final handful of verses. And so what we have here is instructions to Titus on things he's supposed to pass on to the believers for how they should act in their communities. We have, once again, the basis for that is God's work for us in Christ. And then a final warning to people who who are part of the church, but uh, have gotten derailed by some things and have twisted some things and now are stirring up all sorts of controversies and divisions in the church. Titus needs to address those people as he sets these churches in order. All right. Thanks for tuning into this session on the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to Titus. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that is made possible by the generosity and generous support of people just like you. So if you're someone who has given to this ministry, continues to give to this ministry, from the bottom of my heart, let me say thank you. Your generosity is bearing fruit in the lives of people All around the world. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you have been blessed or impacted in some way by this ministry, and you uh, have the financial means possible, would you prayerfully consider setting up a monthly recurring donation or giving a one-time gift to support this ministry? Uh, You can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, and you can set up a, a donation right there. All those donations are received in partnership with an umbrella organization called World Family Mission, a registered nonprofit. And all monthly donors will get access to the study hub, which includes a handful of online courses, as well as a continual stream of new resources that includes charts, articles, uh, maps, pictures, things to just help you dig in and study these Bible books for yourself so that together we can learn and live the Bible. Thanks in advance for your support.